Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you. Happy Father's Day. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us as you make your way to your seats and you get your Bibles ready. Let's pray and ask the Lord uh, to make himself known to us. God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you that you are our God, that you are sovereign, and that you are in control. Lord, I am so grateful that you are both personal and transcendent and imminent, that you make yourself known and reveal yourself to us, and that you relate to us as our Heavenly Father. And Lord, I thank you for the gifts of fathers that you have given us in our lives, the fathers to lead us, to guide us, to protect us, to discipline us, and to encourage us. And Lord, for all the dads in this room, Lord, we thank you for them. And Lord, I pray that you would help them to take their role and responsibility serious in leading their family that as they are leading their family, that they will fix their eyes on you, who is our perfect heavenly Father. And Lord, I do pray that as we open up your word, uh, can you speak to us? Can you make yourself known to us? Can you open up our eyes? Can you reveal truth to us? Lord, as we get to this difficult passage and how, how we see you relate to us and how you describe this relationship between us and you and also among the triune God and as complex as it is, Lord, help us not to be overwhelmed by the complexity of it, but Holy Spirit, help us to see clearly what you're communicating. Help us to fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus. And help us just to be overwhelmed by you, Lord, as we see all of your glories. Help us to see all the wonderful promises in this text and the great commitment that you have towards us. And may that encourage us. May that cultivate in us a deeper love and affection for you that would translate into greater obedience. So please, Lord, come and speak to us and make yourself known. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to John. Uh, we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in John uh, chapter 14, verse 15. And, and so again, what John is trying to accomplish in his Gospel is trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And the way he does it, especially in this part of the Gospel of John, is showing us how Jesus received glory from the Father. And the ultimate purpose is, is, is for you to believe or continue to believe so that you may have life in his name. Now, as we get to chapter 14, and we're going to wrap up chapter 14, what's been happening over the last couple of chapters is that the news of Jesus' departure, the betrayal by one of them, and then also the denial of Peter really led the disciples to have a heavy heart. They didn't really understand what was happening. Like in their minds, they have found the Messiah, they've believed in the Messiah, they have followed the Messiah, and everything that they've signed up for, now things are not going according to plan. 
And so they're heavy with hearts, and Jesus ministers to their heavy hearts by instructing them to believe in him. And so what we saw last week is he's instructing them to believe in him, and he gives them the reason for why they can believe in him. He's saying, you can believe in me because I am leaving for your advantage. I am preparing a place for you in my Father's house, and there is an abundance of dwelling places for all of you there, and it's for your advantage that I am leaving. So continue to believe in me. He says, continue to believe in me because I I am the way to God. And the reason why I'm the way to God is because I am the truth of God and the life of God. And as you're believing in me, cling to the promises that you will do my work and you will even do greater work than these. And whatever you ask for in my name, I will give to you. Now today as we get to the second part of chapter 14, Jesus continues to talk to his disciples and he continues to encourage their troubled hearts. But what he's doing now is he's now beginning to describe the relationship between them and, as I would say, the the triune God. Now, this relationship between the disciples, the believer, and us, and the triune God is a relationship that's not based on reciprocity. And what I mean by that is, you do, then I will do. You do, or I will do, then you do. That's not what that relationship is based on. But it's also not a relationship that has no expectations and no commitment level, but rather, it is a relationship of mutual love. And really, what Jesus is going to do today, he's going to give them the evidence and the expectation of his disciples and then in turn he's going to talk about the commitment and the promises of this loving commitment that the triune God has to these disciples to the believers and to us and in this relationship that he's describing what's even more complex is this relationship that he's describing between him and the disciples really mirrors the relationship among the triune God so that's what we have today I'm glad you came to church. So you're going to have to wake up and really put on your thinking caps because I really think in the complexity of this text, there are some beautiful truths and promises that, that we need to cling to and that ultimately will cultivate a love for Jesus. So let's look first of all at the evidence and the expectation of the disciple, and then we're going to look at the promises of the loving commitment from the triune God. Let's just start off with reading one verse, and then we'll talk about it. Jesus looks at his disciples and he gives them, here's the expectation of my disciple. Here is the evidence that you are my disciple. If you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commands. Okay, let's just stop there. What's the expectation and the evidence of a disciple? If you love me, you will keep my commands. Now, if you really think about it, in the immediate context of this verse, Jesus has already demonstrated his love for them by washing their feet. He has declared to them that he loves them and he has commanded them to love one another the way they should be loved, the way that Christ, the way that Jesus loves them now After he's declared and and he has described and he has commanded for them and demonstrated his love for them, now he addresses their love towards him. Now, I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't assume that they love him, but rather what he does, he gives them clear expectation, clear evidence for the love for him. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Now, if you study the word, 
one of the things you'll notice, if something is mentioned in the Word, it's important. But if something's mentioned more than once, it's very important. If it's mentioned more than twice or three times, four times, it's very important. And what we're going to see is this little phrase we're going to see in our text mentioned five times. This idea is repeated in verse 21, 23, 24, and 28. Now, one of the things I had a hard time is, in our Western thinking, we are linear people. In other words, A leads to B leads to C leads to D. But sometimes in the Middle Eastern, they're not linear people, but rather they're circular people. And so what's happening in this text is I was trying to kind of wrap my mind around it as I'm thinking in linear logical terms where Jesus is not going in linear logical terms, but rather using circular arguments, constantly revisiting the same thing over and over again until you get it. And that's why, so if you're a type A person, as I look at the text, I'm all over the place. I apologize. It is very hard for me myself, but I'm going to try to make sense of it. So we're going to go to verse 15, and then we're going to look at all the different times that Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, and then we'll move on. So the second time it's mentioned is in verse 21. Let's look at verse 21 quickly. 21 says this, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. In other words, when Jesus says the one who has my commands, it's not simply meaning somebody who has received it or somebody who possesses it, but rather what that phrase really means is somebody who has grasped it with their minds. They are understanding it, and when they come to understand it, they are obeying, and by obeying it, they're showing that they love Jesus. Third time it's mentioned is in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. I don't think there's much of a difference between the idea of command and word because both is spoken. And we can even see that the word of Jesus is the word of God. Verse 24 says this, the one who does not love me will not keep my words. In other words, here's this phrase stated in the negative. And then we get to verse 28. It says this, If you love me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father. In other words, what he's implying here is, if you love me, you will trust me knowing that I know what is best. And what is best for you is for me to return to the Father because the way back to the Father is through the cross. And so don't think about yourself. Trust me in this. Obey me. Follow me. If you do, it shows me that you really love me. So if you're taking notes, here's the, this relationship that Jesus describes between us, his disciples, and Jesus. The very first expectation and evidence of his disciple, the believer that's us, is the disciple who loves Jesus keeps his commands. The disciple who loves Jesus keeps his commands. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to follow Jesus. The people of God are called to obey God because of their love for God. But here's what we have to understand, and this is why I'm saying this relationship is not based on reciprocity. We have to understand that this obedience that Jesus is calling his disciples is not a call to obey so that they can gain the love of the Son, but rather it is because of the love of the Son. 
In other words, Christ's love is not dependent on their performance and their obedience, but rather because they are already loved by the Son as He has demonstrated it and He has declared it to them and He has called them to love one another as He has loved them. It is because of that love that Christ has for them. It must overflow in obedience to their love they have for Jesus Christ. And if you think about this, Who is the one who initiated the love? Us or Jesus? It's Jesus that ultimately initiated this love. We see this in 1 John 4.10. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice. 1 John 4.19. We love because He first loved us. So why can we love him? Because he first loved us. And the reason why we obey him is not so that we can gain his love, but we can obey him because he has already loved us. And by us obeying him, we're showing him that we love him too. Now, if you think about this, as Jesus is describing the relationship between the disciple us and Jesus, Jesus tells us, if you love me, you will obey me. And this relationship that exists between us and Jesus really mirrors the relationship that exists between the Son and the Father. Because what does the Son do? The Son loves the Father and does what? Obeys the Father, does everything the Father tells him to do. Does everything that that the Father, uh, everything and does everything the Father tells him to do. And and so what that does is it mirrors that relationship. So in other words, the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son is very similar to the relationship that must exist between us and Jesus. Because of our love for Jesus, we do everything that he commands us to do. We say everything he tells us to do. And so then the question that you have to ask yourself is do you love Jesus and how do you answer that question by asking yourself am I keeping his commands am I obeying his word am I walking in obedience we'll come back to it I just want that question to hang and let's get back to it here Because again, here's what's happening in the text. Jesus is describing the relationship between us and the triune God. He gives us our clear expectations, the clear evidence. If we love him, we must obey him. But now what's happening in the rest of the text is he is showing us the loving commitment of the triune God. Look look, look at verse 16 here. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. 
So as he's describing the relationship from our perspective, now he's describing the relationship from the triune God's perspective. And the very first promise, the very first commitment that he is showing us is found in verse 16. And what's going to happen in verse 16? And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor. And what I want you to do is I want you to put on your Trinitarian lenses on here because what do we see in the text? We see the triune God in action. The Son is asking who? The Father to grant us who? Another counselor, and we're going to find out who's that counselor? The Holy Spirit. So if you're taking notes, here's the very first promise of the loving commitment that the triune God has for us is that Jesus will secure for them from the Father another counselor. Jesus will secure for us from the Father another counselor. Now, now let's unpack this phrase a little bit. Let's talk about the word counselor. The word counselor uh, is a rich word that encompasses many things. In other words, there's many different translations for that word. That's why in some of your translations, you're not going to find the word counselor, but rather you'll find the word advocate or helper or representative. And that Greek word has so many meanings and all the different meanings in a sense summarizes the role of this counselor. Now, the Greek word for this counselor is paraclete, and what it can mean is, in a legal sense, it means an assistant, an advocate, a witness, a representative. In other words, it is somebody who helps you in the court of law, whether they're serving as an advocate, a representative, or as a witness. So when we think of the word counselor, don't think of the word like a guidance counselor or a camp counselor that sits around the campfire and makes you just express how you feel, but rather somebody in the court of law law that stands on behalf of you, representing you, advocating for you, and serving as a witness. But that word paraclete can also mean comforter. But again, the idea of comforting is to strengthen you and to give you aid, not to serve as a little blanket that soothes you in times of trouble. And so we find out this paraclete is our advocate, our representative our aid, our strength in times of trouble. But, but here's the interesting part. Jesus says, I will secure from the Father another paraclete, another counselor, which means what? Which means who's their present counselor? Jesus is their present counselor. He is their present paraclete. And this title, paraclete, has even been applied to Jesus. In 1 John 2, 1, it says this. John says this, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a paraclete with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. In other words, what's happening is that Jesus, during Jesus' earthly ministry with his disciples, he was their advocate. He was the one who was strengthening them, helping them. But now, on this present earth, but now, another counselor is going to come. Another advocate is going to give this task that which, which must be performed on earth. Wow, this parac- Jesus, the paraclete, is going to be in heaven and serve as what? As a counselor, as an advocate, 
as a representative. In other words, really what we see in the triune God is here we have Jesus Christ the Son who is our advocate in heaven who stands before the Lord and represents us, intercedes for us, bears witness to us while we have also the Holy Spirit here on earth that does what? That advocates for us, bears witness to us, represents us. In other words, really what we're seeing is we're not just seeing Jesus having a soft spot and he's the only one out of the triune God that's committed to us, but what we're seeing is that the whole triune God, three persons in one, are equally committed to us. For the Son secures for us from the Father another paraclete. And we find out the identity of this paraclete, Jesus says, is the spirit of truth in verse 17 where Jesus claims to be the truth, the spirit of truth bears witness to the truth. That is Jesus. And Jesus says, since the world rejected the truth, that is me, it will be unable to accept the spirit of truth. So in this relationship now that's being defined between us and the triune God, we're called to love and obey him. If we love him, we will obey him. And the very first commitment he has for us and the promise he's given us, he is going to secure from the Father another paraclete, an advocate, a representative, a witness, a comforter that will strengthen us and give us aid in times of trouble. But Jesus continues and gives more promises of the loving commitment of the triune God. Look at verse 18. It says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live too. And on that day, you will know that I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. See what I mean? How difficult this text is. Like, what in the world is he meaning by all of this? Well, let's, here's the first main thing. Here's the second promise that Jesus gives. What does he tell his disciples? Verse, in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, but I'm coming to you. So the first, the, the, the second promise, the second commitment of the triune God is that Jesus will not leave, if you're taking notes, he will not leave the disciples as orphans, but he would come to them. In other words, he will not abandon them. He will not forsake them. Why will he not abandon them? Why will he not forsake them? Well, I think verse 19 kind of gives us the clue. Look at verse 19 to 20. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live too. And on that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. The whole in you, I am in you, you are in me. Really what he's describing is our union with Jesus Christ. In other words, the reason why he will not abandon us as orphans or forsake us because we are united with him. He says, because I live, you too will live. You are in me and I am in you. And what's even mind-blowing that I don't understand and I cannot fully comprehend is that this union between Jesus and his disciples 
mirrors the union between the Father and the Son. Notice the language is very similar. Jesus has already, in a sense, in the, in the first part of chapter 14, described the union between the Father and the Son. He uses words like this. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. If you've seen me, you've seen what? You've seen the Father. I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. What is he describing here? The union that exists between the Father and the Son. And now what he does is that very same union that exists between the Father and the Son now exists between the Son and his disciples. And I do think the union with Christ, although I can spend a whole week talking about it, is one of the most, most important doctrines in Scripture, and it's also one of the most neglected doctrines in Scripture. It's something we don't understand. And yet, if you study the text, you're going to constantly hear, see these words, and read these words, in Christ, in Him. And what that describes is union. Sinclair Ferguson says this about union. It's a doctrine which lies at the heart of the Christian life and the truth which the New Testament constantly returns. And because I don't have any time to talk about the union with Christ, next week we're going to talk about it because Jesus is going to use the illustration of vine and branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, you'll be bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do not a single thing. And what is he describing here? He's using an illustration of describing the union, but we'll come to it next week. But what we have to understand is this commitment that the triune God has for us. Secure for us an advocate, not abandoning us as orphans, but coming for us. Why? Because we are united with him. As we said many weeks ago, for Christ to abandon us is for Christ to abandon himself. Just like the Father and the Son cannot be separated, they are in a sense one. So the disciple, the follower of Christ and Christ cannot be separated. They cannot be divided. Why? Because they are united together. But Jesus continues and he gives more promises of the loving commitment. Look at verse 21. He says this, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by, the, by my father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. So, so let's stop here. So at one are Jesus and the Father that according to Jesus, the one who loves him will be loved by the Father. And he too will love them. Again, I, I don't have words to wrap my mind around it. But I think one of the things is communicating. It's not like Jesus loves us and the Father tolerates us like some of your children love somebody and you just like them because your child likes them but rather because the Father and the Son are one. The Father loves us because we love the Son. And the Son loves us. And because He loves us and we love Him in return, He reveals Himself more to us. And again, let's not fall into the trap. The idea is not that we initiated this love by demonstrating our obedience and then the Father and the Son simply responded. No, because throughout the Gospel of John, who is the one that initiates everything? 
God is the one that initiates everything. Jesus is the one who chose his disciples. Jesus is the one who revealed himself to his disciples, who opened up their eyes. The Father is the one who drawed them, who had given them to his Son. So it's not this idea we love and then they're like, okay, we'll finally love you back. But rather what's happening is because this ongoing relationship between Jesus and his disciples is is characterized by love and obedience. And then the more we love, the more we obey, the more the, the, the Lord reveals himself to us. And again, this mirrors the relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus said that the Father loves me and shows me what? Everything. Why does the Father show him everything? Because the Father loves the Son. And what does Jesus say at the end of verse 21? And I will also love him and will reveal myself to him. What is that commitment? The commitment is because of the son's love for us, he will make himself known more and more and more, and he will show us everything. He will not keep us in the dark, but because of his love for us, he will make himself known, which, which shows us the, the third promise, if you're taking notes, is this. Jesus promises the love of the triune God and the promises of revealing himself. He promises the love of the triune God and the promises of revealing himself. Again, just just think about this. The fact that the triune God who has always existed in perfect unity and community invites us in to participate with them in this loving, joyous, perfect relationship. And I know for some of you are like, well, what's the big deal of that? I think it's a very big deal. They don't need us, and yet they invite us in. And their commitment is to love us and to show us more of themselves. Even though our finite minds cannot grasp and fully understand it. I pray as we later read on from the text that the Spirit will help us understand the big deal of this, the significance of it. And as you can imagine, just like you're having a hard time right now to understand this text, you can imagine how the disciples felt. And so one of the disciples asked a question. Look at verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, How is it that you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? You see, Judas had a hard time. He he hears the distinction between what the world will perceive and what, what will be given to the world and what they will perceive and what will be given to them. Jesus is not going to reveal himself to the world, but to who? To those who love him. And in Judas's mind, he's like, whoa, 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 wait a second here. That doesn't make any sense. Why would you make yourself known to us who love you and not to the world? Because in Jewish mindset and even in our mindset is a Messiah, a Savior, is somebody that must arrive in undeniable, irresistible splendor for the whole world to see. 
If he's the messianic king, shouldn't he make himself known to the entire world? Why will he only make himself known to those who love him? And Judas just had a hard time putting two and two together. And look at how Jesus responds to his question in verse 23. Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who does not love me will not keep my words. That word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I don't think Jesus is answering his question, but rather he's beating the same drum. If you love me, you'll do what? You'll be obeying me. Do you see what I mean by Jesus using circular argument? He is beating the same drum over and over and over and over and over until you understand it. And as he's beating the drum of our expectations and the evidence of loving him and walking in obedience, he's continually promising us the commitment of the triune God. And look at this commitment of the triune God. It says this, that if we love him, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So in other words, the fourth truth, if you're taking notes that Jesus promises, is that we, that's the triune God, will come to him, will come to us, and make our home with us. Think about that. And this is the part that's confusing. Jesus says he's going to leave his disciples to do what? To go and prepare a place for him, for them. But what is he saying here now in the text? If you love me and obey me, what are we going to do? The triune God's going to do. We will come to you and make our home with you. In other words, while, while Jesus is leaving to prepare a place for his disciples in his father's house, he's simultaneously joining with the father and making a dwelling place in the disciples. So what that means is that God is, is where? Right now. With us. In us making his dwelling place in us. In a sense, the presence of God is here, yet not fully realized. And so what's the difference between it being here in us and also Jesus preparing a place for us and coming back and so that we can be with him? I think the difference is, in a sense, we are experiencing the presence of God, but when he comes and makes all things new, it will, it will be fully revealed, fully realized, fully experienced, without faith you won't need faith anymore why where's jesus he's right there i see him with my eyes but right now we don't see him but we trust that what he is saying is true that he with the father and the holy spirit is taking up residencies in our life and is committed to us and loves us and will never abandon us will not leave us as orphans because we are united with christ and that as we walk in loving obedience, the Father continues to love us as does the Son and is committed to us as the Spirit helps us understand all of these things. Look at verse 25. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you this verse is very encouraging because what it reminds me of and what it kind of gives me encouragement of is that no matter how many words I use to try to make sense of it for you 
I'm not going to succeed. But what does Jesus promise his disciples? The Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit going to do? It's going to help them. It's going to help them make sense of all that Jesus spoke. It's going to help remind them of all Jesus spoke. After the resurrection, all the words, all of the teachings, everything that Jesus said, all of a sudden they're going to understand it. They're going to understand the significance of it in a sense like, huh, that's what he meant. And that's the same for us. We have the Holy Spirit, so as we read the text and and we see this relationship between us and the triune God, and we're wondering, what's the big deal? What's the significance of the triune God being committed to us and loving us and dwelling among us and will never abandon us and us being united with Christ? What's the significance of it? What's the big deal of it? The Holy Spirit will come and make it known to you. And you will understand and the truth will be revealed to you. But notice what the Holy Spirit is going to do. He is reminding the disciples of Jesus' words. In other words, he's not bringing forth new revelation, but rather what he is doing is he is filling out, bringing the revelation that has already been given. As he's reminding them of what Jesus taught them. And then there's one more commitment, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up with an application. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. You have heard me tell I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you love me, you will rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe. I will not talk with you much longer because the ruler of the world is coming. He has no power over me. On the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let's leave this place. The last promise that Jesus makes to his disciples is what? Peace. If you're taking notes. Peace I leave with you. My peace. I give you. What does he give us? He doesn't just give us peace. He gives us his peace. Now, in the first century, and I even think today, peace is a big deal. Shalom, which was the the chosen greeting among the Jews at that time, were words that were given to encourage one another. Even during the period of the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, everyone craved peace. Everybody wanted peace. And yet the peace that Jesus was giving them was unlike any other peace the world would ever know. Because here's the reality. The world promises peace, but the world is powerless to give peace. It, it, it waves the flags of peace, but it simply cannot deliver it. But what does Jesus do? He displays his transcendent peace, his own peace. Peace with God that was made possible through his death on the cross on our behalf. And it wasn't a peace that was dependent on his military victory or his political alliance that he formed, but rather this peace because it was his peace was dependent on who he is. He is true peace, true shalom. And basically what he is saying, my peace I give you. In a sense, he's saying, I'm giving you myself. The disciples were going to need Jesus. They're going to need his peace. 
Because what's going to happen in this context, they're going to go up against their greatest trial where their dear friend and Savior will be murdered via the cross. The path ahead for all of them is going to be difficult because they soon, too, after Jesus' death, themselves will be martyred in the name of Jesus. And yet through all of this, they have peace. Peace that Jesus gives them transcendent peace as Christ has given himself which they need to cling to in the midst of the chaos that they can put their hope in and their confidence in knowing that their hearts do not need to be troubled they have nothing to fear why because they have the peace of Christ they have peace with God because of what Christ has accomplished for them they will never be forsaken now we're out of time I wish I had time to unpack verses 28 to 30 but maybe you can do it by yourself but let, let's talk about some application here here's what's happening in this text jesus is describing the relationship between us the disciples the believers and the triune god and he gives us a clear expectation in this relationship clear evidence that we are in this relationship as well what does he tell us what should we do if we love him we must obey him keep his word keep his commands remember i asked you a question do you love jesus and how do you know whether you love jesus you look at your life and you see, am I obeying him? Am I keeping his commands? And if we have to be honest, anybody struggling to obey? Yeah, and for those that can't raise your hand, you're struggling too, you just don't want to admit it. <laughs> All of us struggle to obey Jesus. Which if we struggle to obey Jesus, what's the solution? And here's where I think, here's the application for us. If you struggle in your obedience to Jesus, the answer is not you trying harder. You doing better. Because I don't think it's an obedient issue as much as it is a heart issue, a lack of, dare I say, love issue. Which means the answer in our struggle to obedience is not to try harder to obey better, but rather to cultivate a greater love for Jesus. Because if we cultivate a greater love for Jesus, that will translate into a greater obedience to Jesus. So that's our first step of application. I'm struggling to obey. It's not an obedience issue as much as it's a love issue. I don't love Jesus the way I should love Jesus. I need to cultivate a love for Jesus. But here's the second thing. How do you cultivate a love for Jesus? It's not like you can like just squeeze it out of you or determine yourself to love him. But here's where I think it can help. I think it's, it's, it's two parts. The first part is the way we can cultivate a love for Jesus 
is more of a determination on our side to meditate on the riches and the glories and the beauty of Jesus. If you look through the text, Jesus was saying the same thing for us. One thing. If you love me, you'll obey me. How many things was he saying about the triune God compared to the one thing? I think five. So what does that mean? The only way for us to cultivate a love for Jesus is if we constantly are meditating on who Jesus is, what he has done, all the beauty and all the benefits that we have in Jesus Christ. In other words, like what cultivates our love for Jesus is a.k.a. seeing the big deal of the triune love and commitment for us. And how can we see the big deal of it? Here's the trick part. You can determine to see it, but you can't see it by yourself. This is where you need the Holy Spirit to make it known to you so that you can see the big deal of the triune commitment to you where you can look at these truths and meditate upon these truths. But it's only through the Holy Spirit that you'll see the significance of those truths. And once the Holy Spirit, who is faithful, and because he is your advocate, because he is your representative, he does bear witness to the truth, so he is faithful and good at what he does. As he makes these truths known to you, it now starts in your cultivate, in your heart, a greater love for Jesus. This translates into a greater obedience to Jesus. But it starts with us saying, I need to meditate on these truths. But again, how can you meditate on these truths if you don't know these truths? How can you you meditate on the beauty and the riches of Christ and the glory and the splendor of Christ and all the benefits that you have in Christ if you're not, if you don't know it, if you're not in the Word, if you don't see it in the text? See, we live in a culture where we think we're the answer to everything and we just need to try harder. But I'm telling you, you're setting yourself up to fail and you can't even try harder to love Jesus. But the little part you can do, let me commit myself to meditate on these truths. Let me commit myself to to know these truths, maybe from an intellectual perspective at first, and then trusting the Spirit to take that intellectual perspective and make that truth now a reality that you get to experience so that when you look at these truths, it's not just you regurgitating them, but it's like, oh my goodness, what beauty, what splendor, what glory that the triune God of the universe is so committed to me, is making his residency, making their residency in me that they are so committed to me that even on a bad day, they will never abandon me. They'll never leave me as an orphan. That they will love me, that Christ is in me, and I am in Christ. And that as I continue in Christ, the Father loves me. He doesn't just tolerate me because Christ loves me. He loves me, and he's committed to me, that he has sent his spirit to live inside of me and to serve as my representative, as my advocate. When I feel condemned, when I feel like the enemy is accusing me, the spirit lives inside of me and is a seal of me and shows the Father that I belong to the Son because the spirit lives inside of me. 
And I think this is the goal of this text. It's not necessarily give us instructions of how to obey, but to show us the wonders and beauties of the commitment of the triune God to us. And may the Spirit make it known to us. Let's pray. Lord, our finite minds really cannot grasp the significance of your commitment to us, your love for us, the fact that you would choose us and lay down your life for us, the fact that you would exchange your righteousness for our unrighteousness, the the fact that you would actually unite yourself to us so that when the Father looks at us, he sees the perfect life of the Son in us and accepts us and loves us. The fact that you invite us in this perfect unity, community of love, joy among the triune God is just, it's it's mind-blowing. And Lord, I do pray, Holy Spirit, can you help us to understand and maybe even see a hint of the significance of it so that it may cultivate in us a deeper love for you, Lord Jesus, that translate into greater obedience. May the head knowledge not just remain head knowledge, but may it transform us as we experience the significance of it and may it move our hearts into action. I just want to give you a moment right now and just to meditate on on the glories and riches of this text as we see the commitment of the triune God. Think about how committed the triune God is to you. That you have two advocates, one in heaven and one on earth. That you're no longer an orphan, but you're adopted as sons and daughters. That the triune God is not far away, not distant, but lives inside of you and made residency in you. That the triune God is faithful and loving you and revealing more of himself to you. In the triune God, Jesus gives you his peace. Basically, he gives himself to you. Why don't you just ask the Spirit for those truths just to set in, for you to ask the Holy Spirit to help you see the big deal of it and the significance of it. Ask the Lord to help you to cultivate a heart after him, a greater love for him.
And as we get ready to sit at the table, really what this table is a display of his love and commitment for us, and the purpose of it is as we declare the Lord's death, the cross, what it does, it cultivates in us a greater love for him because we are reminded of what he's done for us, the great exchange that took place. My unrighteousness, my sinfulness, for his righteousness, for his perfect life. So when the Father looks at me, he doesn't see Neil and all of his imperfections, but rather he sees Christ in me. He sees me as perfect. He sees me as righteous, holy, and blameless, which to me is hard to fathom because I look in the mirror and I don't see that. And yet what he sees is because I'm united with Christ. And what this table reminds me of is that union with Christ, that we get to sit at the table as sons and daughters of the king in the presence of our father as the Holy Spirit stirs our hearts and opens up our eyes and stir a greater affection, a greater reality, a greater understanding on who Christ is and what he's done and all of the benefits and even allows us to look forward to the great wedding feast that is ha- what will happen as we will sit in the presence of the triune God feasting. And so as we get ready to distribute these elements, this is another opportunity for your affections to be stirred, for the Lord to cultivate a greater love for him as you meditate on the riches and the beauties and the glories of Christ and all the benefits that you have in Jesus Christ. And so let's go ahead and distribute these elements. And as we distribute it, meditate on Christ and on the riches and the glories and beauties of Christ and what he's accomplished for you on the cross. What a wonderful ordinance the Lord has given us in demonstrating his love for us and his commitment to us. Something that we get to hear, something we get to see, something we get to taste and smell. Christ's body was given to us. Eat it in remembrance of him. Christ's blood was shed for us. The new covenant we have in him, drink it in remembrance of him. Paul says in, in Romans eleven thirty three. he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God, and how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Lord, we thank you for everything you've done, for everything that you've given us. We thank you that you are faithful, that you are committed to us. Lord, and I do pray that you, can you cultivate a greater love for you? Can you help us to see the significance of the truth that we have been, that we've seen in this text of how committed you are to us, Lord? And may we in respond, walk in obedience and in greater love for you.
we love you and we praise you and we ask all of this in Jesus name amen can we stand and can we sing